Welcome to Holy Trinity. My name is Jordan. I'm one of the ministers here, and it's a delight to have you with us. If you need a place to sit, there's a couple spare seats in the very front row. If you want to venture up this far, it's not quite in front of me, so you'll be safe. You guys aren't safe. Yeah. Advent is one of these tricky seasons. It's meant to be a journey of hopeful anticipation. God is coming to set all things right again. Yet at the same time, it's meant to be this journey of longing and lament. We know from our own experiences that all things are not right yet. Things are not yet the way they're supposed to be. And so it creates this kind of tension. Like God is coming and he's going to set all things right again, and yet we know the reality of our lives is all things are not well. And it's in that tension of that space that the the heartbeat and the cry of Advent comes out. Come, Lord Jesus, come. It's a cry of longing and lament, and it's a cry of hopeful anticipation. Now, if you're anything like me, I find this sort of season a really difficult season to enter into. I really resonated with what Stacy was saying. I mean, there's just the fact of kind of like the cultural and commercial thing that right on the heels, literally the day after Halloween, Christmas is erected in all the, all the stores, right, in the mall. I mean, I've been outside of the U.S. for maybe 11 years now and have just returned, and I have never seen Christmas start so early. <laughs> it used to be after Thanksgiving about a decade ago, and now it's right after Halloween. And so there's this, it's really hard to enter into a season of waiting when it's as if Christmas started a month ago. But there's also just kind of the busyness, hectic, frenzy factor of it all. The second that December 1st hits, it seems like the lists just get longer and they expand at a rate is faster than we can go down and check things off. And there's lots of commotion. There's lots of things to do. There's lots of opportunities. There's lots of people to see. Things ramp up. I remember feeling this as a university student, which is kind of funny because in university you have like the most free time of your entire life. But I remember even then, it would come, you'd have finals week, and you'd be studying, and be writing papers, and you'd be doing all these things, and you would finally finish, and then it would be December 22nd. You hadn't entered into the season. Now, it would be helpful if the stores waited a little bit to set up the Christmas stuff. It would be helpful if our schedules were a little less busy. But I don't think that's completely the answer. I think part of what we are invited to in the Advent of the season of Advent is to cultivate something called a prophetic imagination. Prophetic imagination. An ability to see the details of our lives differently and truthfully. An ability to see and name reality in light of God's ultimate purposes for the world. An ability to see the present in light of what is coming in the future. An ability to see all the details and the busyness and whatever else is going on in our lives in light of God's coming kingdom. We need to develop a prophetic imagination. So the question of Advent becomes like, what does it look like to inhabit this space of holy anticipation and longing? What does it look like to imagine and live my present circumstances, my illness, my fears, my limits, my sorrows, my joys, and my vocation, my loneliness, and my loss? What does it look like to live and imagine these circumstances in light of God's ultimate purposes for the world? 
Advent invites the people of God to cultivate a prophetic imagination, not one that's naive, not one that's cynical, but a prophetic imagination. So what we're going to be doing is journeying with the prophet Isaiah in particular. And one of the wonderful things about the images or the visions that we're going to see in the next four Sundays is there's a profound kind of earthiness to them. So you'll notice that some of the tones of the signs were black and white when you came in. And you'll notice here that we have kind of this earthiness. We have wood. We have pine cones. We have greenery. And the image here is of a mountain. See, the first three weeks, the first three Sundays of Advent, we get this image of a mountain raised high is the first image. The next image is of a new shoot of life growing out of a a dead tree stump. And then the final image is of a desert blossoming into a sort of paradise, a dry land all of a sudden flowing and flowering with life. And every one of these images is intended to give us kind of a picture of what God's new creation is going to look like when the Messiah finally comes and makes all things right again. And what it's designed to do is kind of evoke this longing for that day so that when we get to Christmas and we hear of a baby being born, that resonates with all the implications that that has for all of creation and all the details of our lives. We've been anticipating, we've been preparing for the goodness of that coming. Our image today is of a mountain. It's a vision of global transformation. It's an image of the mountain of the house of the Lord being raised high above all the other surrounding mountains. It's an image of Jerusalem, basically, being raised up above all the other nations. Now, it's hard to understand why this is a hopeful image in one sense. But we have to view it in light of Genesis chapter 12, like those original Abrahamic promises that God made to his people. Abraham, I will bless you and make you a great nation. Why? So that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So throughout the Old Testament, there's this wonderful hope that God is going to be committed to his people Israel. He is going to save them. He is going to redeem them. He is going to make them a great nation. But why? so that the whole entire world will come to know God's blessing through them. So what we see here in this image is an image of Jerusalem, the mountain of the Lord being raised high, and then all the nations flowing to God's holy presence. There's like a magnetic appeal to God's presence in Jerusalem, in his people, that draws all the nations to experience his blessing. We can think in the early birth narratives of Christ of, Everything from the rich magi coming to the Lord from the east, to the shepherds in the fields coming to the Lord. A magnetic appeal of God's holy presence in human flesh. And this vision is of the nations having an authentic desire to hear God's instruction and to receive his wisdom for living. Notice in verse 3. The peoples come to the mountain, they say, Lay, they say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. They go that they may listen and learn, and they learn and listen that they may live. And then in verse 4, we see the results of this desire to learn from the Lord. 
It's like a total geopolitical transformation. (laughs) The justice of God ushers in a peaceful and fruitful society. Look at verse 4. He, God, shall judge between the nations and shall decide the disputes for many peoples. It's an image of all the nations of the earth bringing their problems and their conflicts to the Lord, and then the Lord telling them how to live in the way of justice. And then the result is that they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. So what's the upshot of this vision? Coming of the Lord is going to mean there will be a day when there will be no more war. It's a vision of freedom not only from the ravages of war, but also from the threat of war, the causes of war, and the cost of war. I mean, just think about the audacity of this vision for a moment with me. It seems so earthy, and it's stated so plainly and simply, but think about it. Think about all the long-standing battles and conflict that have stricken the Middle East for centuries. Think about the protests that are going on in Hong Kong right now and how things, pressure is continuing to build and violence is bubbling up. Think about the drug wars that are still going on in many places in the world. Think about the shootings that happen in our nation's own schools on a monthly, if not a weekly basis. You see, the prophet Isaiah is telling us that the coming of the Lord is going to bring no more war. There's going to be no more need for armed forces and weapons. And look at the imagery here. You get like weapons, swords, and spears are being turned into instruments of farming and harvest. Weapons which take life are being transformed into those things which cultivate and nourish and sustain life. We get little glimpses of this. I mean, there's that famous story from World War I in the trenches in 1914 on Christmas Eve when British soldiers and German soldiers and French soldiers had kind of a a ceasefire for 24 hours where they got out of their trenches and they came into what was called no man's land. They played football, they shared drinks, they lit candles, they sang hymns, they enjoyed a silent night. But that's just a glimpse of it, because the war continued on, and it did immense damage. But there will be a day when there will be freedom from the threat of war. And not just from the threat of war, but from the causes of war. I mean, like, why do nations go to war in the first place? Why do we have conflicts in our lives in the first place? (laughs) One end, nations might want to protect the innocent and the vulnerable and seek justice and peace. But on the other hand, lots of nations envy what other nations have. They want to take advantage of others. There's greediness. And this vision is saying that all these causes for war, all the greed, all the resentment, all the retribution, all the fear, all the pride, all the envy is no longer going to be there. There's just not going to be a need for war anymore. Now, a lot of this can kind of seem abstract and distant, but I actually think it kind of hits fairly close to home. We can tend to think of these kind of public-private divides in our life. 
Like, what do these kind of geopolitical wars and, and international relations have to do with the privacy and the particulars of our own life and own homes? But the reality is, is that the sort of relationships that we cultivate in our own homes and the sort of dynamics that we cultivate in our own relationships and communities are precisely the things that find flourishing and expression and flowering in the way that we relate politically with other nations. I was at a Christmas tree place the other day, buying a Christmas tree all by myself. And it was really interesting because I was looking at a certain Christmas tree, <laughs> not knowing what I was doing. And I was like, oh, yeah, I think Susie will like this one. This should work. And I stepped aside for a moment to call Susie and take a picture of it and send it to her and ask her if it's something she would want. And in that moment on the phone, I watched somebody else who was hovering near me go over and pick up the Christmas tree and walk away with it. They were watching me and waiting. So I was like, well, that's not going to work. And so I just grabbed the next one and I brought it. And I happened to interestingly get in line behind this person in order to buy it. <laughs> but the most interesting thing happened. I heard her kind of whispering to her husband in front of me, saying, wow, he has a really nice tree. <laughs> The human heart's a funny thing. <laughs> Envy shows up in more ways than we expect it does. In the way that we relate to our neighbors, in the way that we relate to our spouses, in the way that we relate to our friends and coworkers. This vision is saying there's going to be freedom from that. And even more, there's going to be freedom from the high cost of war. The high cost. Dwight Eisenhower, I read an article that was written by him this last week, I came across it, where he explained something called the exchange rate of war. It was 1953, it was the beginning of the Cold War, and he was saying, we have one of two options here, and they both don't look very good. <laughs> he said, there's either, the worst case is atomic war, and he said the best case would be this. This is what he described, the best case for a Cold War. A life of perpetual fear and tension. A burden of arms draining the wealth and the labor of all peoples. A wasting of strength that defies the American system or the Soviet system or any system to achieve true abundance and happiness for the peoples of this earth. And listen to what he said, every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signals a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and not clothed. The world in arms is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, and the hope of its children. Cost of one modern heavy bomber is this, a modern brick school in more than 30 cities. It's an electric power plant serving two towns of over 60,000 people. It's two fine, fully equipped hospitals. It's some 50 miles of concrete highway. And he goes on and on to talk about the exchange rate of war. And then he ends and says, this is not a way of life in any true sense. 
Under the cloud of threatening war, it is humanity hanging from the cross of iron. Humanity hanging from a cross of iron. You see, this vision is a vision not only of the threat of war being taken away, not only the reasons and the dynamics that lead to war, but also from the high cost of war. And there's this image of the desolations of war and those instruments, those swords and those spears which cause that desolation being turned into instruments of harvest and fruitfulness and life and abundance. And all of this happens when the nations flock to the Lord, to the child born in Bethlehem, to receive a new way of living and being as human beings. It's a grand vision. One could well join Mary in asking, how can this be? How can this be? And I think it's important that we acknowledge the bleak realities that this vision is saying will one day disappear. But it's also important that we acknowledge that it's really hard for us to believe that these will one day disappear. See, if you're anything like me, I have this constant temptation for my heart to become overly calloused by continual disappointment. Like every time there is another shooting that hits the headlines, it's hard to know what to do with it. Every time another nation tacks yet another nation, it's hard to know how to swallow it. You see, we pride ourselves for being so enlightened, <laughs> for all of our technological sophistication. And yet the last century was the bloodiest human history has ever known. You see, Isaiah's speaking right into that context. He's speaking into all that disillusionment and all that fear and all that comes from all that threat. And he's saying to us that we can be confident that the future belongs to God, that our lives are secure in his hands, that peace, not war, will have the final word in this earth, that we do not live in Nietzsche's world where the will to power is what will finally dominate everything. See, Isaiah is inviting us to cultivate this prophetic imagination. He's not inviting us to be naive about the realities of our world and the violence and the hurt that is in every doorstep and that is every border. But he is inviting us to see the present reality and all of its complexities and pains in light of the future reality, which is peace, which is abundance, which is God's rule and reign. And so the practical question I have is, like, how do we live in this tension? How do we live with this prophetic imagination? And that's the invitation we're given in verse 5 of this vision. O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. It's stated so simply. <laughs> o house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And notice how that invitation in verse 5 mirrors what the nations are saying in verse 3. So verse 5 is an invitation to God's people, Israel, and then verse 3 is this vision of all the nations flocking to the Lord. You see what's happening here? Isaiah is inviting the people of God to live in such a way that gives the world a foretaste of what's to come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. 
It's inviting the church of Jesus Christ to live a different way of being human, a different way of relating to one another, a way of relating to one another that depends on seeking the wisdom from the Lord, his justice and his peace, and then to let that way of life be a light for the nations of where the world is heading. I think that's why the Apostle Paul then says so simply in Romans 13 to the church, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. I mean, what is war if not murder, stealing, and coveting? oftentimes. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. God's people are invited to be a communal foretaste of what is to come. See, we may not be able to cause wars to cease, but we can model a different way of living and relating as human beings. See, we may not be able to stop the production of tanks and machine guns, but we can certainly walk over and find a way to listen to and serve our next-door neighbor. We may not be at the control room of the Pentagon making decisions about how we interact with other nations, but we are in our homes around the table making decisions about how we teach our children to relate to people with whom they deeply disagree. We may not be in the conference room in the conversation at NATO and its gatherings, but we sure can learn to listen to one another, to really listen to one another. May the Lord cultivate in us this advent of prophetic imagination, the ability to see the particulars and the complexities of our present cultural moment in the light of what's to come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.